Hello, friends. Derek Sweatman here, pastor of Atlanta Christian Church. I want to let you know that today's sermon recording was not done live. We tried that on Sunday, but my microphone failed and the backup microphone failed. So uh, this is a podcast-style sermon, but I'm going to redo it for you. And I hope you enjoy. This is the first in our four-week series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And I hope you are encouraged by today's message. Enjoy. Grace and peace. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 through 18. We're going to spend the next few Sundays in this Old Testament story of Ruth. And what I want us to do is to listen to what it says about God and about the various expressions of God's grace in our lives, particularly through the actions of people around us. And we begin with these words of Ruth, which she spoke to her mother-in-law, whose name is Naomi. Now, I don't know if you've heard these words before or not. They may be brand new to you. I don't know, or maybe you heard them at a wedding, it's a strange text for a wedding, uh, or you saw them in a frame on a cross-stitch piece of fabric hanging in the hallway of someone's home, uh, or perhaps you saw Jeopardy last week because, oddly enough, this uh, text came up in one of the clues, and so there we go. The Lord is leading us through Jeopardy. Either way, you don't have to be familiar with this story to feel the weight of Ruth's words. They are clearly words of commitment and promise. And there is within them this real sense of presence. I want you to catch that. Come hell or high water, Ruth will be there, is what she's saying. And these words are like the stuff of lyrics and songs, of vows and weddings. Like when Adam first saw Eve in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 23, he speaks these words This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now that, my friends, will go well in a song. Or from Proverbs 18:24 where the writer says, "Some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks closer than one's nearest kin." Or maybe the message version of this Ruth story you might be more familiar with. It goes like this. So, no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke. You're broke. Your love life's DOA. It's like you're always stuck in second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. But I'll be there for you. Now, of course, that's not from the message version of the Bible. That's from the show Friends. But I thought it worked. It sounds like something Eugene Peterson may have written. But that's for another day. I like the message version. My wife does not like the message version. It's a point of contention. But Ruth's words here are, again, words of presence, of an enduring presence. They are words of permanence, too, this 
sense of withness is very strong in her language. This unyielding commitment to sticking around. Now, words like these are important for us to hear too, but they are also important for us to say as well. And Ruth stands in the story as a template for the kind of voice that belongs in everyone's life, especially when life has been broken into pieces. Now, a few things about this scene of the story. Now, Ruth said these things to her mother-in-law, whose name is Naomi. And along with Ruth's sister, these three women have been through hell. It all started with a famine in Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, which drove her and her husband and her two sons to seek shelter in Moab, where there was food and the possibility of security. Now, the Moabites and the Israelites were not close friends by any stretch. You need to know that. So Naomi and her family were risking quite a bit. They were seeking shelter and security among a people who had been enemies and maybe still were. So acceptance and safety were not really a given for this family. It reminds me of those images of the Ukrainian immigrants in tears, their children frozen in fear as they leave behind everything for an unknown future. And it's good for us to embrace this scene in this way so that we don't reduce the story to something less than the hardship that it was for Naomi and her family. But the thing is, it gets worse. While they're in Moab, Naomi's husband dies. And then her two sons, they die. No reason for the deaths is given. But it doesn't really matter. The death of a loved one, no matter the cause, is still a death. It's still a loss. And what the writer wants us to see and to feel is this immediate absence of life and breath. In her own poetic way, Phyllis Tribble writes about this scene saying, With death canceling life, a whole family shrinks to a solitary figure. Naomi stands alone. From wife to widow, from mother to no mother, this female is stripped of all her identity. The security of husband and children, which a male-dominated culture affords its women, is hers no more. The definition of worth by which it values the female applies to her no more. The blessings of old age, which it gives through progeny, are there no longer. Stranger and strange land... This woman is a victim of death and of life. But there does remain this presence of Naomi's daughter-in-law. Well, both of them, really, Ruth and her sister Orpah, they are with Naomi in these moments. Widows themselves, they too are suffering. But Naomi is actually not interested in the additional anxiety. She's headed home and asks them to stay in Moab. It's couched as a concern of sorts, but you know, she's holding out this prospect of a future for them. They could have new husbands, a family that could carry on. They're young enough to still do that. But a closer reading shows that she's really not interested in the extra weight during her journey back home. And Orpah says, Great, I'll stay here. But Ruth will not leave. The text says that she clung. To Naomi. And it's in this moment that Ruth speaks these words, and let me read them again. Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. And may the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. These are the first words attributed to Ruth in the story. And they're spoken into a tragic scene of pain and loss. But Ruth is a fellow sufferer. We have to remember that too. She's not a dispenser of daily affirmations or like influencer positivity. She's living in the midst of loss and uncertainty. She is a companion in pain. And that's something that we must remember as we move through this story. But here's the thing. As moving and meaningful as Ruth's words are, they kind of fall flat with Naomi. They're enough to cause Naomi to give in and to let Ruth go with her, but she's not comforted by them really at all. Notice what Naomi says of herself at the end of the chapter. The writer says, So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That name Mara is Hebrew for bitter. I went away full, she said, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You can really sense that as great as those words were that Ruth spoke to Naomi, they fall flat amidst her suffering. Naomi is not interested in hearing something like it's okay not to be okay. She wants her life back, and that's fair. Now, the continuous loop of life that we're all familiar with is this loop of orientation into disorientation and then back into reorientation. Let me define these for you. Orientation is that state of living where things are stable. There's stability. Things feel under control, manageable. You're nailing it. You're really succeeding. You feel the need to share success tips to others, some TikTok life hacks, whatever. You're just on top of your game. Everything feels oriented and in place and settled. It's a good place to be. It's not a negative. That's where we'd like to be, and it's good. We function well in the oriented state. We can think Clearly, we can encourage one another. We can be content. But as always, something disorients us and moves us into that phase, this disorientation phase. This is something like an unforeseen event, like a tragedy. And it creates instability. There's uncertainty. Our worlds get rocked by something that we weren't expecting. And disorientation can be very Troubling. It can also create great frustration. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult phase for us, this disoriented phase. Something has been done to us. Something has happened around us that has removed us from that settled, settled oriented state. And now we're just sitting here in this weird in-between, everything feels loose state. But the next stage is this reorientation stage. And the thing between the pathway between disorientation and reorientation is basically paved with things like time, processing, resetting, and good therapy. But the reorientation phase, phase is like a, 
It's a state of recovery. We're back in control of things. Things feel a little more settled. But it's important to remember that the reorientation phase does not include the same old, same old. We're not a re- it's not a return to what we were. We are normal again, so to speak, but we are changed. We have been reshaped by what disoriented us. We're different. Now, the story of Ruth begins in the disorientation stage. Naomi's life was shaken to the core. And this is what we get from the very first verse of the story. Again, this story begins not with an orientation phase, but a disorientation phase. Everything seems to be falling apart and everything feels impossible. And that's what disorientation feels like. We all understand this part of life's loop, this disorientation that we experience. And when we are disoriented by life, that's when we feel detached from the things that once provided stability. We feel alone. There's a sense that we are languishing in life. And it's the losses, I think, that hurt the most. Something like a loss of a career. Sometimes it doesn't seem that like, like it's that big of a deal, but it really is a big deal. We pour our lives into these things, and then they're gone, and it's a loss. It's a tremendous loss. During the COVID months, the, when our church was closed for something like 16 months, you just need to know that like the staff here, we just thought we were done. You know, We thought this... This thing is going down, you know, all these churches are closing. It's a struggle. We were convinced as a pastoral team that our days were numbered, and that was that. We were sort of dealing with that and doing our best to keep things afloat, but it was kind of like the party on the deck of the Titanic. We felt as though it was really going down, so we'll just enjoy the Zoom ride while we sink. But one of the things that we really were concerned about in addition to our own careers and livelihoods, was yours. You know, just watching the job market shift and people losing their careers, it really concerned us for you. So lots of prayer and stress and anxiety on your behalf was familiar to us. Or the loss of a marriage, the investment in a relationship that's so deep and intertwined, and to lose that can be tough. It's a disorienting thing or the loss of a loved one, no matter the cause. That's tough. The loss of health or a shift in your health is a disorienting thing. It's all disorienting. It's all difficult when we go through losses. When people come into our church from outside of this congregation and they need help financially or otherwise, they are always in the disorientation phase in their lives. Something has happened or something keeps happening and stability for them is lost. They are languishing in fear and uncertainty. As a pastor, I see this with faith too. Like when our faith takes a hit, it can be quite disorienting for us. Nothing seems to help. And it's into that disoriented state that Ruth speaks her words of enduring presence, words of permanence, of witness, and commitment. And though her words mean little to Naomi in the moment, they have been spoken, and now they hang there on the walls of this story. They are unavoidable, and they are foretelling of things to come. Now, as a pastor, you can imagine I do a lot of weddings. 
There's been a rumor in our church through the years that I don't like doing weddings. It's not true. I do love doing weddings, especially with people that I know and love and from this congregation. So if you ever need a wedding done, let me know. But usually in my wedding ceremonies, I will talk about the vows at some, at some level. These exchange of words and promises that people make to each other. Here's a piece of my wedding script that I've just lifted for this sermon. It reads, I don't know how many weddings I've performed at this point, but every single one of them share in the tradition of the exchanging of vows. Some couples write their own vows, which are usually really, really terrible, while others simply hold the line with the old familiar ones about having and holding and taking each other as is. Whatever the vows are that the couples exchange, all of them are voicings of a kind of faithfulness that eludes our culture. They promise to do something that we're not really that good at, which is committing to something, to someone, forever. In this, the vows are a low-grade articulation of how God loves us. Think of the vows and listen to this. God takes us. He holds us. He walks with us. For better or worse, he loves us. Whether we are spiritually sick or healthy, he remains beside us. And he has promised never to separate from us. That's all it is. These vows that we exchange with one another in our deepest relationships are simply earthbound articulations of the way that God loves us. And in our deepest relationships, The call for us, the responsibility for us, is to be images of this kind of love that God has for all people. The responsibility of how we do relationships is to provide a glimpse of that love. And what I want you to see in this opening scene of the story of Ruth is how she stands there as the God figure, the presence in the midst of great absence. She is an orienting voice in a disoriented and fragile time. She's also the picture of a stubborn grace because she too is leaving behind all kinds of things, her homeland, her people, her beliefs, her faith. She is a Moabite, by the way, and she is attaching herself to a whole new system of philosophy and religion. And she's certainly leaving behind a possible more stable, possibly a more stable future for herself. She has attached her broken and uncertain self to another broken and uncertain person. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's description of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You can hear the architecture of Ruth's words in that very description of Jesus. Someone leaving behind everything to attach themselves to a broken situation and to even give their life for that person. I want everyone to hear that today. I want you to see and to remember that whenever you were lost and disoriented, that there remains a voice of permanent witness in your life. The most repeated command throughout the Bible is not thou shalt not, but it is the command do not be afraid. This call to remember the presence of God's grace and guidance in our lives. God remains in the vacuum 
of loss. I think about Paul's words again in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where he writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Witness through all things. When we line up in a moment to receive communion, pay attention to the visuals of the sacrament, the bread that represents the broken body and life of Jesus and the blood that represents that life that was poured out for you and for me. When our life breaks, and it will, we remember too that Jesus was broken for us. Grace and peace and amen. Amen. That I hear Lord, Friday evening, hanging on our cross, hanging down misery. Oh, 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 hanging down misery. Don't make a mind.